I'd like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. God, when we read His Word, He speaks to us directly. And so turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 15. And if you need a pew Bible, it is page 554 in your pew Bible. And so we're going to read this passage where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And when we come to the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to ask you to join me and read that out loud with me when we get to that point. So let's begin in verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their, re- their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Listen to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as you have taught us. And we ask, Lord, that we would learn to pray as you taught your disciples to pray. For indeed, we are your disciples. And it is you who are speaking to us by your Spirit through your word. So I pray, Lord, that no matter how intimidated or maybe how new we are to prayer or how much of a veteran or even a prayer warrior, that we would all be prayer learners this morning, that you would take us deeper into your heart, that our prayer life would be more consistent, that our intimacy with you would be greater, that there would be less pretend and more authenticity. Father, may our hearts be ready to learn from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, somewhat amusing, in fact, sweetly amusing to hear the prayers of little children, such as, Dear God, I know you love me, but I wish you would give me an A on my report card so I could be sure. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different summer camp this year. Peter, 
Another such prayer. Dear Lord, I won't pray too long because I know a lot of other kids want to pray to you also. Please listen to their prayers too, except Michael. He only prays when he's in trouble, which is every day. Yours truly, Natalie. And then the last one. Dear Lord, my grandma just went to heaven. Please take care of her. Her name is Grandma. (laughs) These are somewhat amusing prayers by little kids, but today we are going to look at the greatest and most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer because the Lord Jesus taught it to his disciples. It's somewhat shocking to realize that the Bible only records one instance when the disciples specifically asked him to teach them to do something. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, verse 1, when one of his disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I'll have to admit, if, if I would have been there, I think I would have asked, Lord, teach me to walk on water, or, or Lord, teach me how to turn water into wine, or Lord, teach me how to do that feeding of the 5,000 thing. Something of that nature, something more miraculous, if you will. The disciples, and this is somewhat astounding, they saw the magnificent power of God displayed through many, many miracles of Jesus Christ during his earthly time. And yet, here's the thing that they ultimately asked Jesus to do. And that is to teach them how to pray. And so Jesus taught the disciples to pray in this prayer, a model prayer in less than 60 words. And so as we come again to the Sermon on the Mount in our series here, we come to the pinnacle of prayer. It's the most unique and important teaching on prayer in the history of the world. But before we look at the Lord's Prayer we must first see something that Jesus assumes. Jesus makes an assumption in this passage on prayer. In fact, the assumption is foundational to everything he says about prayer. Notice it in your notes if you want to pull that uh, insert out, if you want to follow along on the screen. Notice this, when you pray, Jesus assumes we pray. He makes that assumption. He assumes you and I, as his followers, pray, but not because we need to be seen as godly, but rather because we desperately need God. Jesus assumes that his followers pray. In fact, three times Jesus makes this assumption. When he says in verse 5, and when you pray. In verse 6, but when you pray. In verse 7, and when you pray. Now, of course, we also learned last Sunday that Jesus uh, qualifies all this with a warning in verse 1 of the same chapter here. We saw it last Sunday where he says, beware. It's a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness. And then he gave us three examples of that righteousness. He gave us the example of giving and fasting, but also prayer, which we're coming back to now. So this warning includes the prayer. Be aware of practicing, we could say, your prayer before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, the reason we pray is not, Jesus says, to be seen by other people, to be seen as godly, but because we simply need God. That's why we pray. 
And Jesus assumes that about us. So let's stop before we move on and let's ask a question. How's your prayer life? Jesus assumes we're praying. So how's it going? When you pray, what's it like? Is it powerful and vibrant or or is your prayers rather boring and stale? Is your prayer life somewhat hit and miss? Or is, do you pray regularly throughout the week? And when you pray, what do your prayers consist of? Are your prayers all about you and your concerns and your needs? Or do you pray for other people? And more importantly, do you pray about God and his mission? I'm guessing that for most of us here, our prayer life could be a, a lot better. But how, then, are we to pray? That's the real question for many of us. We desire to pray. Why? We're Christ's followers. We have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, and we need His power. We want to have intimacy with Him. We want to bring before Him our petitions and requests. But how do we go about doing this? We don't know where to begin. And if that's where you find yourself, listen, you're in good company. For that is the place where Jesus' first disciples found themselves as well. So how should we pray? Well, notice, number one, when you pray, don't pray like this. When you pray, Jesus says, don't pray like this. So before teaching us how to pray, Jesus first teaches us how not to pray. In fact, look at verses 5 through 8, and you'll notice, see, look at all these All the nots. In verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. And then verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be like them. So Jesus is telling us something here. Here's what not to do. Jesus says, when you pray, first of all, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the heathen. We're not to pray like the hypocrites and the heathen. So how not to pray? Let's break this down a little bit and understand why he tells us this. First of all, don't pray like the hypocrites, who we learned last Sunday. That's in reference to the Pharisees. That was Jesus' common name, his pet name for the Pharisees, because they were hypocritical. They had a superficial righteousness about them. They were self-righteous. And so Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites who seek to impress people with their prayers. In fact, Jesus tells us this in verse 5. Look at it. For they, these Pharisees, they love to stand praying in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, when we read this, it's somewhat tempting to think the Pharisees' problem here in their praying was maybe their posture in praying or maybe even the place in where they were praying. However, their posture of standing to pray is not the essence of the problem. One can pray standing, one can pray sitting, one can pray kneeling, one can pray driving in your car. Nor is the place of praying, in this case in the synagogue or on the street corners, the basic problem with the Pharisees either. Although it is perhaps a symptom. One can pray anywhere. You can pray inside, you can pray outside, you can pray anywhere. And you can pray standing, kneeling, or sitting. The problem was the Pharisees themselves. 
the problem was in the heart. You see, they were praying to impress people in order to receive the praise of people. And their reward they got. They got the approval and the applause of people, but not of God. So, again, here's a question we ought to think about. When you pray, who's your audience in prayer? And what is your motive when you pray? That's what Jesus is getting at here. As R.A. Torrey writes, we should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to him. So Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Instead, instead, people who know God, and by the way, this is the basic problem of both the the hypocrites, and the heathen here. Some of your Bibles will say uh, the Gentiles or pagans. The problem with both of these is they don't know God as their heavenly father. But Jesus is now talking to us who have a relationship with God. He's our heavenly father. And Jesus says, instead of the, the hypocritical way of praying, people who know God, who truly know God as their father, they pray sincerely. And they pray secretly to their heavenly father. This is what Jesus teaches in verse 6. Look at it. He says, but you. And that but there is in contrast to the Pharisees. But you, as a Christ follower, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So Jesus says to pray in private Or we might say the secret place. Now, for clarity, that does not mean Jesus is opposed to praying in public. We just did this this morning. Twice we've already prayed in public. Nor does it mean that Jesus is opposed to corporate prayer. So when you gather in your grow group tonight, you're going to pray corporately in that group. Jesus is not opposed to that. That's not what he's saying here. But knowing our tendency to pray in order to gain the praise of people, Jesus provides a helpful remedy for that. He says, find a room and shut the door. And pray to your Heavenly Father. As someone once said, the secret to prayer is secret prayer. At this point, though, again, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' primary emphasis is on location. That is, that we must have a, quote, secret place or a secluded place. Rather, Jesus' emphasis is on attitude. Don't pray for show like the hypocrites do. That's his point. Now, of course, the instructions that Jesus gives us here is important, though. What he says is valuable to helping us in our prayer life. A secret place or a private place, a secluded place, it does not guarantee sincerity or humility before God. So just because you pray alone doesn't make you not a hypocrite in praying. But it is, for those who truly know Jesus as their Heavenly Father, it is a solution, a safe solution against praying to impress people. Here's the point. We need to find a time, we need to find a place where we can pray unobserved, undisturbed, and unheard by people, but not God. 
And again, that doesn't mean that Jesus says we can't pray in public, or nor, nor should we not pray in public, nor should we not pray corporately with other believers. In fact, we'll see in the Lord's Prayer that that's a corporate prayer. Second, Jesus says, don't pray like the heathen or the Gentiles, non-Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who seek to impress God, though. Having scattered the proud Pharisees, Jesus next quiets these loud babblers seeking to impress God. And Jesus tells us in verse 7, And when you pray, do not use, and this is the key phrase, vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now again, for clarity's sake, Jesus is not condemning repetition in prayer or even repeated prayers. Here's what he is condemning. It's vain repetitions that heap up many words without thinking, but thinking their prayers will be heard because of their many words. Vain repetitions describes any and every kind of prayer, which is all words and no meaning, all lip and no mind. And so what Jesus forbids is any kind of prayer with the mouth when the mind And the heart is not engaged with the Father. Mark it down. Mindless, meaningless prayers do not impress God. Now, the picture that comes to mind, at least for me in this, is the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Some of you may be familiar with the story. If you're in the New Life class, you definitely know the story. Elijah tells them to pray to their God and see if he will rain down fire on the altar. And so the people prayed to the prophets of Baal all day. And they prayed with these loud shouts. And they even cut themselves with swords. But no one answered their prayers. Why? Because, one, they were praying to false gods. Dead gods. They were not to the living God. Now, today, this might include meaningless prayer chants. It might even include the mindless use of the rosary in which nothing happens but the fingering of beads and reciting of words. And yet, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have been guilty of this kind of mindlessness in our prayers, of letting our tongues run ahead of our heads. Our lips are moving, but our hearts and minds are standing still. They're not engaged with the Heavenly Father. Instead, God says, people who know God as their Heavenly Father, listen, they pray confidently, and they pray specifically to their Heavenly Father. This is what Jesus says in verse 8. Look at it. Therefore, do not be like them. That is, these pagans, these heathens, the Gentiles. Don't be like them. And now he tells us why. For your, your, your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. So Jesus reminds us a truth here. He reminds us that God is not some distracted, absent-minded deity that needs loud, repetitive prayers in order to garner his attention or to convince him that you are super serious about your prayer and therefore, hey God, you ought to listen to me now. 
God is neither ignorant so that we need to instruct him, nor is he hesitant so that we need to somehow persuade him. God is our father. And that's the emphasis that Jesus is making all throughout this chapter here on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically chapter 6. God, the heavenly father. A father who loves his children. A father who knows all about the needs of his children. And isn't that a relief? And if God already knows what you need, then there is no need to fill his ears with a lot of meaningless babble or what Martin Luther called everlasting twaddle. God knows your needs. In fact, he knows your needs even before you ask him. And your asking does not inform God of anything that he does not already know. It simply affirms that he is the one who is able to handle your situation. That he is the one who is able to meet your needs. Therefore, pray boldly, pray confidently, pray specifically to your Heavenly Father. As R.T. France puts it, Prayer is not the communication of information, still less a technique for getting things from God. The more words you put in prayer, the more results you get out of prayer. But rather, prayer is the expression of the relationship of trust, which follows from knowing God as Father. So how should you pray? Well, first, Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray like this. Don't pray like the hypocrites who seek to impress people with their prayers, but also don't pray like the heathen who seek to impress God with their vain repetitions. Second, Jesus says, when you pray, do, do pray like this. So after telling us how not to pray, Jesus tells us in verse 9, he says, in this manner, therefore pray. And then what follows has been called the Lord's Prayer, although it might have been better to call it the Disciples' Prayer since Jesus used it to teach his disciples how to pray. In giving us this model prayer, Jesus is saying this is how you should pray, not necessarily what you should pray. And yet, again, for clarification, there's nothing wrong with reciting this prayer either individually or even corporately, like we just did when Chris did our scripture reading, and we all recited it corporately as a church, the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with that, especially as a reminder of the truths and the themes that are contained in this prayer that Jesus gives us. I like what St. Clair Ferguson writes. He says, this prayer serves two purposes. First, it provides a model prayer, an easily memorized outline that serves as a lesson in how to approach God as Father and how we are to speak to Him. Second, though, it serves as an outline of the whole Christian life by providing, quote, fixed points of concern for the family of God. It underlines life's priorities and helps us to get them into focus. That is so true. In other words, here's what he's saying. Our prayers should then resemble the categories and content of the Lord's Prayer. 
Not necessarily verbatim, word for word, although that is never wrong to recite the prayer as long as your mind is engaged with what you're reciting. And when you get to the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, basically it comes down to two categories. It's all about praise and petitions. Praise to our Heavenly Father, and then we're bringing Him petitions. In fact, almost everyone who has ever read the Lord's Prayer agrees that this prayer is simple, and yet it is spectacular. After the initial address, it's very common to divide the prayer into two sections, with each section containing three petitions or three requests. And so the first section focuses on praising God. It focuses on the glory of God. And so all the requests contain the word your, referring to God himself. The second section focuses on our need for God's grace. And so all the requests contain the words our in us. We could also think of it this way. The first section of the prayer is missional. It's all about the mission of God. Whereas the second section of the prayer is all about God meeting our needs, not to build our own kingdom, but for the kingdom of God. In other words, we prayed for our needs so that we can now live out the mission of God that we've just prayed for in the first half of the prayer. So what this prayer does for us, it teaches us how to pray, not self-centered prayers. That's what the hypocrites and the heathens do. And it's still what we are tempted to do, even as Christ followers. Instead, Jesus takes time to teach his disciples. Here's how to pray God-centered prayers. Notice it. First of all, when you pray, approach God as our Father in heaven. Approach God as our Father in heaven. Jesus tells us to begin our prayers by calling on God. And listen, he's very specific on how to address him. Our Father in heaven. That's not by accident. Listen, the privilege to approach the sovereign Lord of the universe in such a manner should never be underestimated. In Jesus' day, let me tell you, addressing God as our Father in heaven was radical. Note that the word our is a plural pronoun. And it shows us that this is a corporate prayer, even though we may pray it individually. At the very least, it reminds us, this plural pronoun, that we belong to a community of believers. We are not praying alone. We are praying with and for each other as part of God's eternal family. And he is our heavenly father. It also reminds us of the often overlooked reality that God is ours. Now, of course, not in the sense that we own God or that we possess God, but in the sense that we are in relationship with God. That's amazing. And based on this relationship, we call God our father, which means he calls us what? His children. As one scholar writes, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba, which means dearest Father, after him. 
He gives them a share in His sonship and empowers them as His disciples to speak with their Heavenly Father in just such a familiar, trusting way as a child would with his own earthly father. Now, how can we call God, quote, our Father? Listen to me. You can only call God our Father when His Son is our Savior. Some people may be praying today, but they are not being heard by God. And the reason is they do not have a relationship with God as Father because they have never believed in or received His Son as their Savior. What does the phrase in heaven mean? Well, it's not a reference to God's mailing address, but rather to His authority and majesty. So lest we get too chummy with God as our Father, Jesus adds some balance with this phrase, our Father in heaven. This phrase reflects something of God's infinite greatness and His sovereign transcendence. It refers to the fact that God is above the created universe. His throne ascends in glory where He rules sovereignly over the earth in our lives. And so when we come to God in prayer, folks, listen to me. We come with intimacy. We come to him with confidence. We are his children and he is our father. But lest we forget, he is also majestic. He is sovereign. He is God, the Father Almighty. As you begin to pray and after you address him in the proper way, our father in heaven, Focus first then on God's glory in relation to his name, his kingdom, and his will. Jesus teaches us to pray then next, hallowed be your name. Now this word hollow, that's not a term we use nowadays. I don't remember the last time I ever said hollow, except for Halloween. Hollow, but it simply means to make holy. It means to set apart. And the idea is that when we pray, we are to acknowledge that God's name, and the reason it's God's name is because God's name, it represents the totality of who one is. And so when we say, hallowed be God's name, we are acknowledging that God's name, everything who represents him, that he is holy and he is separate from and exalted over every other name. And since that is already true, We're not praying, in other words, to make God's name holy and separate. That's already true. When we pray that God's name, we are praying that God's name will be made known. We're praying that it will be treated as holy by all peoples. And so this is about the fame of God's name across the earth. This is a missional prayer. And this fame of God's name should drive our prayers. And when answered, it means that we, we ourselves who are praying that we will hollow God's name. And so we are asking our Heavenly Father to act now in such a way that we and an increasing number of other people will acknowledge God, will honor God and glorify God with our lives. And that would happen across the earth. That's why we support Silas and Riley. That's why they are going to Mongolia. So that God's name would be honored by the Mongolian people. 
the next petition. Your kingdom come. It naturally flows from the first petition. In the New Testament, God's kingdom is expressed as both a present reality and a future consummation. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom during his earthly ministry, but the fulfillment of his kingdom will not be fully consummated until he returns to rule and reign as king in the millennial kingdom. In the meantime, though, we pray that God's saving reign will rule in people's hearts now and that God's kingdom will be consummated on earth with the return of the king. And so it is no trivial thing to pray this. Your kingdom come. In fact, we ought to ask ourselves, how much do we really hunger for God's kingdom to come? We're going to learn next two Sundays that Jesus tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And you're like, well, how do I know if I'm seeking it? Well, are you praying for it to come? And is it in your life already? The early Christians were so eager for Jesus' return, they actually prayed, Maranatha, Maranatha, which means, oh, Lord, come. They were looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And that picture of the new heavens and new earth is at the very heart of this petition where we are pleading with God for Jesus, the King of kings, to come again and reign supremely as the very last verse of Revelation, the last verse of the Bible says, come, Lord Jesus. That's what we anticipate. That's our hope. That's what we are looking forward to. The third petition is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is closely connected to the previous petition. And so while we are waiting for God's kingdom to come, we want his will to be done on earth, but folks, also in our lives. Do not pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth, and you're not willing to have it done in your life. See, that's hypocritical praise. If my heart hunger is that God's will be done, then praying this prayer is also my pledge that by his grace I will do his will. J.I. Packer put it this way, here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain, not to make God do my will, but to bring my will into line with his. This means we do not pray to get our will done in heaven. We pray to get God's will done on earth in our lives. Now, we need to be brutally honest at this point because to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a dangerous prayer. You say, what do you mean? Well, it means the exaltation of God's sovereign will and the death of your selfish, sinful will. And by the way, that's what all our wills are. It means starting your day praying, Lord, I want to live this day for you. May your will be done in my marriage. May it be done in my family, my work, in all my life. Use me to fulfill your will obediently and immediately. As one author and professor adds, this insight, your will be done are words of surrender, words of confidence, and words of grace. They can only be prayed by those who've been delivered by the Redeemer from the one kingdom that always leads to the destruction of death, the kingdom of self. 
It can only be prayed by those who surrender their will to the living will of the loving Father in heaven. As you then continue to pray, focus next then on God's grace. So we move from God's glory and now we shift to God's grace in relation to our daily needs forgiveness, and spiritual victory. And in this first petition, we confess that we depend on God's grace to give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is not just talking about food. For bread here is a figure of speech, which represents our needs. And that means the necessities of life rather than the luxuries of life. In other words, we are not to pray for our greeds before our needs. And it's interesting that twice in this petition, we have an emphasis on today. Why? Because God wants you to live in daily dependence on him. Now, this is the petition that most people in our country, and I'm included in this, I'm not exempt, that we we take for granted. However, give us this day our daily bread is a prayer that in much of the world, is prayed with a sense of urgency and desperation as they live day by day. In fact, in Jesus' day, to pray, give us this day our daily bread, was no empty rhetoric. Living in a relatively precarious existence, Jesus' followers were to learn to trust their Heavenly Father to meet their daily needs. After all, James 1.17 reminds us Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. The next petition is most necessary, where Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, St. Augustine, he actually called this specific request here the terrible petition. Because he realized that if we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and we do that with an unforgiving heart, we are actually asking God not to forgive us, for debts here really means sins. Now, when you think of how many times that we have sinned against God, I don't know about you, but I begin to realize that we live in the land of debts. We are up to our ears in debt. Let's say you have a student loan of $100,000. And you are well aware of the severity of the hole you are in financially. And so now what you are asking God to do here in this prayer is like asking the government to cancel what you owe on your student loan. But that is precisely what Jesus tells us to do. Ask God to what? Forgive us. Our debts, our debts of sin. And thankfully, our sin debt can be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus paid it all with his death on the cross. And since Jesus paid it all, there would be nothing so profane then as to accept the forgiveness for our sins, but to leave unforgiven the sins of others. This is why Jesus includes... And forgive us our debts, that little phrase, as we forgive our debtors. You see, Jesus assumes something here. He assumes that if you know God's forgiveness for your own sin debt, then you will forgive others. For a 
forgiven person is a forgiving person. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. That's a strong but appropriate way of putting it. But that is also what Jesus taught in the parable of the unforgiving servant later on in Matthew chapter 18. It's also what he teaches here in verses 14 and 15. Look what he says. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You see, the forgiven must be forgiving. Not, not, please understand, not forgiving in order to be justified before God. Why? Because we're not justified based on what we do or don't do. We are justified based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the forgiven must be forgiving because we are justified before God. Therefore, we will be forgiving. As Leon Morris explains, Jesus is saying that to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God. Kent Hughes writes, if we will not forgive, he just says we're not Christians. Now that's a frightening statement, he also writes. But it is true, for when God's grace comes into our hearts, it makes us forgiving. We demonstrate whether we have been forgiven by whether or not we will forgive. So if I refuse to forgive, there's only one reason why. I am outside of grace and I myself am unforgiven by God the Father. This is the most dangerous petition on this prayer to pray. Because what we are doing in this prayer here with this petition, we are actually inviting God to look into our lives and to see if the evidence of his forgiving grace has flowed over into the lives of those who have sinned against us, who have hurt us, who have offended us. The final petition is crucial then for our spiritual victory. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the idea here is not, Lord, please don't bring us to the place of temptation. Nor is it, don't allow us to be tempted. Why? Because we know earlier in the same book of Matthew in chapter 4, that Jesus, that God's Spirit brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So what is being asked here? is rather, Lord, don't let us surrender to temptation. And instead, Lord, give us the grace to resist temptation and deliver us from the evil one who is the Satan himself. And so here we find a prayer for utter dependence on God's protection and power. It is a prayer that is fully aware of the spiritual battle that we are in as Christ followers. There is an enemy of our souls. There is a, a natural pull away from God in which we 
struggle with in this world, there is the danger of apostasy. And Satan's wartime goal for your life is to discourage you, defile you, and devour you. And without the Lord's power, without his protection, listen, you will certainly be defeated. Therefore, we must pray for spiritual victory at the beginning of our day and even throughout our day. And then thank God at the end of the day for it. We should pray because we desperately need God. And here Jesus shows us how to pray with this model prayer. This prayer, it rebukes the hypocrites who seek to impress God with their grandstanding. It rebukes the heathens who seek to impress God with their vain repetitions. And this prayer, you know what it does for the Christians? It humbles us. It humbles believers who recognize I desperately need God. And it keeps us focused in our prayers on the glory of God and the grace of God. Some of you may be wondering about the the ending to this prayer. It's actually called the doxology, which is a praise. So it's a doxology of praise that we see at the end of the Lord's Prayer here in verse 13, where it says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this doxology then is simply the praise. This praise is the church's joyous response to praying the Lord's Prayer. That's what it is. It's a great ending to the Lord's Prayer, and it is fine to use. It's good to use it. In fact, King David himself actually used these words in a prayer in the Old Testament when he prayed in 1 Chronicles 29, Praise be to you, O Lord, God, our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. And what we have now in this doxology is a summary version of that. However, many scholars do believe that this doxology was probably not part of the original Lord's Prayer since it is not found in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts of our New Testament. In fact, it appears that this doxology was added sometime in the 1st or 2nd century, which is why some Bible versions, and you may be having holding one right now, some Bible versions include this in in the Bible, and some Bible versions do not include this. In fact, one scholar says... This doxology was included because of the Jewish custom of ending all daily prayers with a brief song of praise. And that's what this is. Here's the point. Don't think it is wrong to include or use the early church's song of praise at the end of the Lord's Prayer when we pray. When we pray, yours, God, is the kingdom we affirm that God alone rules over all creation. When we pray, yours is the power, we affirm that God alone has the power to answer our prayers. When we pray, yours is the glory, we affirm that God alone is worthy of all praise and honor. And when we pray forever, amen, we affirm that all these things will always be true of our God. No wonder the early church then ended the Lord's prayer with this Song of praise. 
It's simply the joyous response of approaching the Almighty Father and praying for His glory and grace on our lives. Let's bow our heads and go to our Almighty Father in prayer even now. Heavenly Father, we confess that we speak about prayer way more than we actually practice it. And so we ask that you would help us to put into practice what Jesus teaches us here in this model prayer. Forgive us where we fall short and build in us a new desire to commune with you and depend on you. For we give you the praise and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to prepare for our offering. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. And uh, we're going to receive the offering. The offering place will be passed by. So the praise team is going to sing a chorus. And then once we finish our offering, we're going to have you stand. And we want to sing a doxology of praise. We want to praise our Heavenly Father. We want to affirm and acknowledge who he is and what he has done for us before we leave here as a congregation. So let's receive the offering first, and then we will praise in song.